Flip the script, buy the dip, ignore the risk, make it quick. Markets moving kind of fast. Sentiment like this just don't last. We've seen it come, we've seen it go. But just when stocks start heading low, buyers pounce all over those dips. The VIX stalls, the market rips. Weren't we worried about inflation, COVID spreading, hiring stagnation? Aren't interest rates about to rise? Isn't the supply chain compromised? The list of worries can raise our stress. So we put the seat back and ride. The Investopedia Express. Oh, how swiftly sentiment shifts. U.S. equity markets staged a strong reversal last week with nearly every sector posting gains, a complete 180-degree turn from the prior week. Dip buyers were back as $6.7 billion flowed into single stocks and ETFs at their highest levels all year. Better news on the vaccine's potential effectiveness on the Omicron variant may have been behind the enthusiasm as recovery and reopening stocks bounced off their recent lows. Inflows into exchange-traded funds topped $1 trillion so far in 2021. That's a milestone. How are you feeling? Well, according to Investopedia's recent reader survey, just about as bullish as you felt all year. You're leaning back into risky assets, making more frequent changes to your portfolios, and adding crypto to your portfolios as well. Our readers are doing this while acknowledging that there is a bubble in risk assets, and over half of our readers say the stock market is overvalued. The biggest bubble? Bitcoin, with 36% of our readers calling it number one, followed by the U.S. housing bubble, and then the U.S. stock market. Your biggest regrets for 2021? Not investing more and not buying crypto. FOMO turning into regret. Our readers' biggest concerns for 2022? Inflation, of course. That was the top choice at 76%, followed by supply chain disruptions and then more COVID variants. It's not a surprise that inflation topped the list of concerns given that the consumer price index jumped 0.8% in November, up 6.8% year over year. That's the fastest pace of growth since 1982. E.T. Phone Yep, 1982. The year E.T. was the top movie and Olivia Newton-John's Get Physical was the top song. Don't worry, I won't sing it. Prices keep rising across consumer goods, starting with gasoline, which is up 58.1% over last year. Food prices also grew 6.1% year over year. When you strip those out, like economists like to do, and you look at the core CPI, it's up 4.9% from a year ago, rising at its fastest pace since 1991. Terminator 2 was the top movie that year, and Brian Adams' Everything I Do, the top song. Go Canada! Prices are extended across all the key categories that we feel the most as consumers. Shelter costs gained 3.8% for the year, the fastest pace since 2007. Used cars and trucks increased another 31.4%. Airfare, apparel, household furnishings, beer, bacon, coffee, chicken, chocolate, all significantly higher than last year. Elected officials promise that these high prices won't last, and the investigations have already begun in search of price fixing, gouging, market manipulation, you name it. But none of those will fix a supply chain that was not ready for this sustained spike in demand. So how's the Federal Reserve going to cool down the economy? Well, by reducing the fire hose of money supply even more than it pledged to do already. The Federal Open Market Committee meets this week its last meeting of the year on interest rates and monetary policy and prepare to hear Fed Chair Jay Powell say the central bank will further taper its monthly government bond purchases, which have basically been the safety net under capital markets for the past 18 months. Investors already expect to hear that, but what will the Fed say, if anything, on its plans to start raising interest rates? The Fed's dot plot, which is the ugliest chart in economics, indicates two rate increases in 2022 beginning in the third quarter, with several more planned for 2023. 
With the economy running at this high temperature, though, the drumbeat may get louder for speeding up those hikes and maybe higher increases when they start. Countries like Sweden, Norway, South Korea, Chile, and Russia have already started raising their rates, and it's probably not a coincidence that most developed countries have underperformed the United States and Canadian equity markets. According to our pals at YCharts, the MSCI USA and Canadian indexes are up 24% and 20% respectively year-to-date, while Europe's MSCI index is up 10%, South Korea down 6%, and China and New Zealand down 20% or more each. This will be the fourth year in a row that U.S. equity markets have outperformed the rest of the world. You can thank the Fed in part for that. And buybacks are back in style. Not that they ever went out of vogue, but the numbers are eye-popping. Oracle and Broadcom both just announced $10 billion share buyback increases, and both those stocks hit record highs last week. Coincidence? I don't think so. Companies in the S&P 500 repurchased $234.5 billion in shares during the third quarter. That tops the previous record of $223 billion in the fourth quarter of 2018, according to S&P Dow Jones Indices. The wave of share repurchases has helped propel U.S. stock indexes to dozens of records in 2021. The S&P 500 is up 25% so far this year, notching 67 record closes. While companies are buying back their shares at record levels, CEOs are selling theirs just as fast. Elon Musk has sold off nearly $12 billion in Tesla shares of late, and while he is the elephant in the pool when it comes to wealth and cash-ins, 48 top executives have collected more than $200 million each from stock sales in 2021. That's almost four times the average insider sales numbers for the past five years combined. Top executives across the S&P 500 have sold a collective $63.5 billion in stock in 2021 alone. That's up 50% from last year. Good time to be the boss. Who's selling? The Walton family, the owners of Walmart, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, Microsoft's Satya Nadelli, Michael Dell, and even the so-called silverback gorilla himself, AMC Entertainment CEO, Adam Aran. CEOs aren't just selling, many are joining the great resignation and straight up quitting. Twitter co-founder and CEO Jack Dorsey recently announced he's stepping down from Twitter, although he'll stay on board in the corner office at Square, now called Block. Others are taking early retirement altogether. Through November, 25% of exiting CEOs are retiring, up from 22% who left their post last year, according to Challenger Gray and Christmas. Tech companies make up the greatest percentage of CEO exits at about 13%. More women are finally getting the top job at long last, but still not enough. So far this year, 26% of new CEOs are women, but they still only represent 5% of overall CEOs in the S&P 500. That's got to change. Let's get set up for the week ahead. On Tuesday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will release its producer price index for the month of November, which measures inflation based on input costs to producers. It will show that wholesale inflation continues to rise after hitting record levels in October. Producers have been passing some of those costs along to consumers, and on Wednesday, we'll find out whether holiday shoppers kept spending amid those higher prices. I'm going to go out on a limb and bet yes on that one. Housing Starts and the National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index are both due out on Thursday, and high prices across the country and higher prices for building materials have yet to shake the industry's foundations. Home builder confidence hit a six-month high last month. But the spotlight will really be on the Federal Reserve this week, as I mentioned earlier. Expect the Fed to at least double its pace of tapering its monthly government bond purchases and keep an eye on that dot plot. If more dots make it into the first half of 2022, interest rates may be heading higher sooner than many investors thought. Very few earnings reports are due out this week, but pay attention to FedEx's quarterly report 
on the 16th, the shipper is always a pretty reliable indicator of business and consumer demand. They're here. I told you they were coming, and now there are several Bitcoin-related exchange-traded funds available for retail investors and many more on the launch pad. It was only a matter of time before the ETF industry found ways to wrap Bitcoin-related securities or futures into exchange-traded products, but the real challenge may have been getting the Securities and Exchange Commission to green-light these products. That wasn't easy. Jan Van Eck has been at the front of that battle as Van Eck recently launched a Bitcoin futures ETF last month after going several rounds and several years with the SEC. Jan is the CEO of VanEck US and a pioneer in bringing new ETFs to the market. And he is our guest this week on The Express. Welcome. Caleb, it's honored to be here. Uh, congrats on the launch. I know this was years in the making and and not easy at all. And you and your firm, Jan, you're, you're so widely considered to be pioneers and early adopters of investment products, especially ETFs, but look across the spectrum. You were among the first to offer them to retail investors back in 2006, early on emerging markets, early on fixed income ETFs. And you've been working on this Bitcoin-related strategy since 2017. What did you see then that made lightning strike for you? In early 2017, after hearing about Bitcoin for several years, I said, I've got to determine whether Bitcoin is going to disrupt gold. I run a money management firm. Gold is a, a major part of a store of value kind of inflation hedge portfolio. Is Bitcoin going to replace or disrupt gold? And so we did the deep dive. And made the determination that indeed it's the case. And I think over the past several years, I've met thousands of investors who understand why you would own gold, who are also owning Bitcoin today. I think they go together. Folks will remember last week, we were speaking to Rick Edelman about this and about this adoption that's going on among retail investors and the perception of it. But you say something very interesting in, in some of your literature that you actually perceive it as a store of value, which is one of the big contested points about Bitcoin and crypto-related securities. How do you see it that way? Explain it to us. You know, it's funny. We have uh, in our research several mental models about this whole blockchain Bitcoin evolution, and I can't prove any of them. And it's funny how other people, I think we all have mental models. And as I said, I can describe, I can answer your question, but I can't point to anything. I wouldn't want to say, oh, the correlation of this or the performance of that. It's just really an analysis that you think will play out in the future, which is why I love history, as you know, to give us clues as to the future. But Bitcoin, to me, it's a limit, limited quantity, number one, and then the, just the wide adoption. There could be any kinds of sort of limited quantity assets that have value. But when you have hundreds of millions of people looking at this one thing, like they've looked at gold, and you see adoption continuing to rise year over year, then I don't think you can fight the crowd on that one. Yeah. And, and it's not like the adoption is in a small pocket of the market anymore or a small pocket of retail. There are major retailers accepting this. There are credit card companies offering it to you as rewards. You can pay for it and get your salary in it if you want to. Let's talk a little bit about the Bitcoin strategy ETF ticker XBTF and invest in Bitcoin futures contracts, not the spot price of Bitcoin itself, which is something you tried to do, right? Something that regulators have been so resistant to, but why have they been so resistant to allowing ETFs that do track the spot price? And then I want to get into your ETF. When I look back on 2021, so much has changed in the crypto universe. My favorite factoid is that $3.5 trillion of economic value has transacted on the Ethereum blockchain this year. 
And I could spend half an hour explaining all the major things that have happened this year. The interest is that regulators have really done nothing this year, almost. You know, there's so much change and there's so much discussion about regulation, but so little regulatory change as, as we come to a close. The Bitcoin ETF is clearly sort of something the regulators have taken hostage and trying to negotiate more regulatory control over the crypto ecosystem. They look at things called like stable coins and crypto exchanges like Coinbase and are just frustrated because they have no clear legal jurisdiction over all those developments. And so they've held the, the Bitcoin ETF hostage. And, you know, we're going to continue pushing. It's disappointing that investors have to choose alternative methods. So explain to some of our listeners who may not be that advanced in terms of investing in ETFs, especially in crypto related ETFs, how the Bitcoin futures part of this works. You're really betting on the futures price of it, like a futures market would express. But for those who are just sort of learning about this, how would you explain it? Investing funds have often invested in the futures related to an underlying commodity like oil, because it's very impractical for a fund to actually store oil. And the futures exchanges have very detailed specifications of what it means to be a commodity because they're different grades of oil, they're different grades of whatever, right? So that's historical. All investors need to know for their own total return perspective is that investing in the futures curve can distort the returns they get in a relatively significant way. And that's true for Bitcoin as it was true for oil in, I think it was 2006, actually, where oil futures underperformed spot oil by 20%. So it can be a major differentiator in terms of the difference between a future strategy and a spot strategy, but it's the best you can do for regulatory reasons. And so that's why we decided to ultimately offer this strategy. I find it odd that they would allow that, which seems like a more volatile strategy, given the futures market, rather than the, the spot price itself. But Bitcoin and a lot of the cryptocurrencies themselves are already volatile enough. And maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. They just, they like the fact that the futures are regulated. That's their one. Regulators love regulation, and that's what they're sticking to this time. Because they're offered through the CME and, and other futures exchanges. And CFTC so I, regulated, right. That makes sense. You also recently filed to launch an exchange-traded fund, an ETF focused on the digital asset mining companies. You're calling this one for now the Vanek Digital Asset Mining ETF. You're going to invest at least 80% of the total assets of in securities of digital asset mining firms that generate or have the potential to earn at least 50% of their revenue from mining activities. This is the picks and shovels part of the digital currency world, Jan, as you know. Why are you so bullish on this part of the ecosystem? ETFs sometimes are just tools to play exposure. And we launched in April an ETF that invests in all kinds of crypto companies, and the ticker symbol is DAPP, D-A-P-P. What's interesting about that is that you know that we're known for gold mining funds, and GDX is the benchmark in the industry. The market cap of Coinbase and mining companies and all these other crypto companies is approaching the total market cap of large cap gold companies. It's amazing. You know, an industry that's been around for uh, decades, if not centuries, gold mining is now almost being eclipsed by the market cap of crypto-related companies. So we just uh, the Bitcoin miners is a, a way to play the price of Bitcoin. Again, since the spot Bitcoin price hasn't been approved 
we thought that might be an interesting slice for, for investors. And right now, it's a very prof- extremely profitable activity. And it seems like it's this endless market because new coins can keep getting developed. They need to be mined or existing coins that don't have that cap on them like a Bitcoin does. There's almost no end to the mining and the processing of these. And it becomes more complex the more coins you develop and the more of each coin that you develop. Do you see that just as an ever-expanding market? What I would say is what we're focused on is the databases, the smart databases. We call them the smart contract databases. So the difference between, let's call it Ethereum and and things like Ethereum that allow you to build stuff on top of it, whether it's financial applications, exchanges, brokerages, or NFTs, right? Which everyone knows. Both of those classes of things run on Ethereum. And I think in 2021, you started to really separate smart contract software from Bitcoin. What, you know, my factoid before, about $3.5 trillion transacted on the Ethereum blockchain. There's others like Solana and things like that. So I think going forward, that, and unfortunately, we can't wrap it in an ETF, but that is the kind of way to think about the ecosystem. And I think they're going to start performing differently. And if you look at just the volume of transactions, it's tremendous. Now, one of the ways those blockchains, they charge fees for transacting on it. And so if you look at the revenue of those blockchains, that's kind of how an ordinary investor can say, okay, I get it. Ethereum generated $20 billion in fees this year. I get why it's worth 10 times that or 20 times that because it has almost no cost, right? So I get why I might want to own a piece of that income stream that's generated from the, the mining or the verification or whatever you want to call it, the use of the database. It makes sense to me, but it's complicated for a lot of people to wrap their minds around it when they think about the ways, especially folks who may be around my age, middle age or so, when they've lived their life a certain way. And now they're seeing this wide adoption of digital currency, of digital art through the NFTs, this authentication that's happening and the decentralization, not just of finance, but across industries. And Jan, I know that you're a historian, you love history and you love market history too. What does this remind you of, or what does it make you think about when you see just this change happening? It's not like it happened overnight. This has been really happening over the last 10, 12 years. But the Web 3.0 of it all, the ambient computing now, the decentralization of everything, what does it make you think about? What parallels do you draw from your own past as a history lover? Well, I'd say two things. Number one, any breakthrough technology has an investing bubble associated with it. (laughs) And this is what the cautionary tale is. So if you look at the evolution of the radio or the railroad, tremendous price appreciation. Everyone wanted to own the little railroad and then they all got merged together. And you know, for 50 years, you never made money in railroads, even though everyone started using railroads. And, and I think that the use of these databases will continue to grow, Caleb. So I think that you want to own a little bit now, but you don't want to put all your money in, but you don't want to watch the whole thing either. You need to own a, a little bit now, but that's cautionary tale number one. My favorite thing though is uh, the second point with just the railroad was such a revolutionary technology for the U.S. one economic network at the time. And the trivia question I like to ask students over the summer is, how long did it take Abraham Lincoln to communicate with his generals who were fighting the Civil War? Was it weeks? Was it days? Was it hours? And the answer is, it was seconds, because he used the telegraph. So in a way, Bitcoin's cool, 
But the telegraph that Abraham Lincoln used was actually faster than it takes to process a block on Bitcoin, right? So just in perspective, it's more the way things are happening, not the speed so much uh, these days. Anyway, those are my two kind of observations. I love those. And, you know, you have a pretty good eye on the market. You have 77 odd billion dollars under management at Venek. That's no small amount of money. But you also have a you're kind of your finger on the pulse of what your clients want, but also what's happening across the industry. And it's been such a wild year, year and a half, obviously, for investors. What are the, some of the takeaways you have from just the way people have behaved amid all of this, mostly on the individual investor front, but also what you're seeing through your own clients? I do think this has been the golden age for individual investors. It's sort of the information that's available on the internet. I mean, the fact that a, a crowd would chase up a meme stock and hurt a hedge fund, you know, kind of use the same trading strategies that hedge funds use against other people is, uh, gives me a chuckle. I think that enthusiasm about that will, will slow down as returns moderate, which is happening now. But I do think there is a dynamic where individuals are a vibrant part of the market. And with the ETFization of, of everything, I actually think stock selection for small caps and mid caps is something that individuals can, can actually do. If you, it doesn't take a lot of time because there's not a lot of research coverage of mid caps and small caps anymore. So do-it-yourself investors, I think, aren't at such a disadvantage anymore. And I hope they will continue to participate in the markets. Between the tools, no commission trading, fractional shares, ETFs wrapped around everything you can think of. There's plenty of choices for for individual investors. And we've seen uh, 20 odd million come into the market in the last year and a half. We feel them and we see them here at at Investopedia. And I know you're seeing that at Van Eck and across the industry as well. Jan, you know, we're a, a site built on our investing terms and folks learn a lot about investing in finance by coming to us for the first time. What's your favorite investing term? The one that just rings so true to you or that, that makes the most sense in your mind and makes you excited? You know, the concept that I really love to think about is liquidity. Investments are great when you come in, <laughs> but ultimately you want to be able to sell them both at an individual security level, but also at a market level, it's really hard to figure out liquidity of investments. And we saw that during the market crash of last year of March, right? Why did the Fed step in? There was no liquidity. There was trillions of dollars of financial instruments and no, way, no one to buy and sell them. I just think that that dynamic is just really interesting. I think it's one of the big things that ETFs offer investors is liquidity. I can tell you when gold mining shares are in a bear market, it, they're not very liquid. It's hard to sell large amounts and you get bad prices. ETFs are a way, they've added liquidity. Our ETFs are just way more liquid for that sector of the market. So both from a systemic and from a practical perspective, I love liquidity. I love thinking about it. Very hard to measure, very hard to predict. Great term and one of the most popular on Investopedia. One more on the way out here as we head into the to the home stretch of the year. What's your hot take for 2022? What do you think may come up that we're not expecting? Or what do you think may be on the horizon that we are, but maybe a bigger deal than we may perceive? Well, the obvious question is we've been in 10 years of post financial crisis market support, if you will, from the Fed with one, one or two brief exceptions. And so are we in a paradigm shift from a historical perspective, right? I don't think we've been in a period where the Fed has supported financial markets so much. Have the political winds changed so that fighting inflation is more important to Washington, D.C. politicians than supporting the economy and jobs? 
that would be a fundamental change. It would be a negative for financial assets. I personally think a lot of that's being priced in already. People are taking the Fed at their word. So I think there are some real value parts of the market. When I look at resource equities, even healthcare stocks, if you can buy stocks at nine to 10 times earnings, I'm happy. That's a good thing I'd like to own more than bonds. Should be fascinating to watch. I think a lot of people are asking that same question. And we really appreciate the time. Best wishes on this launch and the upcoming launches of your ETFs. And thanks so much for sharing your perspective, Jan. Jan Vanek, the CEO of Vanek US. So good to have you on the Investopedia Express. Thanks, Caleb. Good to see you again. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Derek, who goes by DRock54 on Twitter. He's a fellow New Mexican. What's up, 505? Orale. Derek suggests payout ratio this week, and we like that term given the impressive surge in corporate earnings in the past year. According to my favorite website, the payout ratio is a financial metric showing the proportion of earnings a company pays to its shareholders in the form of dividends expressed as a percentage of the company's total earnings. On some occasions, the payout ratio refers to the dividends paid out as a percentage of a company's cash flow. The payout ratio is also known as the dividend payout ratio. After a disastrous 2020, when many corporations were forced to cut their dividends, dividend payouts to shareholders have been rising for the past several quarters. The dollar value of dividends paid out on the S&P 500 will likely hit historic record levels in the third quarter and for the full year of 2021 as well. On the other hand, because of the relentless rise in the S&P 500 this year, which is up about 25%, Dividend yields at 1.3% are kind of near historic lows. The last time yields were this low was September 2000 when they hit 1.14%. The long-term average since 1936 is 3.54%. Good suggestion, Derek. We'll be sending you a pair of the all-bad Investopedia socks for your next trip home to the land of enchantment, and we'd like to see you wearing those while taking down a Blake's Breakfast Burrito Christmas. Hey, we just launched a new podcast and we'd love for you to check it out. It's called The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia, hosted by yours truly. It's an exploration into what it really means to invest along with your environmental beliefs and conscience. We hear and talk about sustainable investing and ESG, but there's still a lot of confusion about what all that really means. Even the investing industry is unclear about it. But as climate change, global warming, and environmental destruction become more formidable challenges to life on this planet as we know it, Many investors want to be able to align their portfolios with solutions to these issues. On The Green Investor, we'll be talking to the smartest people we can find across the investing, academic, political, and private sectors to make ourselves smarter, more aware, and more prepared to become green investors. Our first episode, Out Now, features a conversation with Spencer Glendon of Probable Futures. Spencer left the money management industry to study climate risk, and what he and others have discovered is that the financial industry is not prepared for what the planet is telling us right now. Given that, we're going to let Spencer take us out this week. Here's Spencer Glendon explaining how climate risk in investing terms is really about duration and location. And so what I try to tell people is that climate change in finance terms is about duration and location. And the more climate change we face, the less reasonable it is to offer duration because there's more risk, more uncertainty in the future. And that risk is proportionate or depends on where that location is. And one of the bad things that modern finance has done, that modern society has done in general, is abstract from place. Check out the full conversation with Spencer Glendon on The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia, wherever you listen to your podcast, and let us know what you think. 
The Investopedia Express will keep rolling on as usual, and we'll talk with you again a little further on down the line. Mm-hmm.